Hundreds of robot parts are dumped into a sewer in the parking lot behind the Sync Corp headquarters. Among the parts is the still functioning head of a dismembered robot. Where is my torso? <sighs> That's better. After reassembling himself, Sewerbot trudges through the sewer, looking for a way out. Sewerbot comes to a series of marks scrawled on the sewer wall. A number eight, followed by three triangles, an empty circle, a square with a circle inside, and underneath sloppily chalked letters spelling out Grey Rock Camp. Hobo symbols. Kind women. Nothing to be gained here. No danger. Around a corner, a group of humans tend to a meal around a fire. Hello? Another one. You got a name? Uh... You're new then. <laughs> well, you don't eat, but you're welcome by the fire anyway. Thank you. I don't think I have a name. No one gave you one when they turned you on? They don't talk to us much. The old woman ran her fingers across Sewerbot's carbon plastic breastplate over a faded text that read 7GAZ. Nice to meet you, Gaz. My name's Llewellyn, but everyone calls me Old Lou, or just Lou. A man hiding behind Lou grabs a rifle resting by one of the human shacks. Sewerbot rushes toward the gunman, rips the rifle out of his hand, and grabs the gunman's neck. Fucking scab! <laughs> It is at this moment that Sewerbot sees robot limbs and torsos hidden between the human shacks, laid out and lashed together with braided wiring. Please, I'm sorry. That raft is our best way up and down the canal. We, we don't mean anything by it. That's why we keep it hidden. I'm sorry. We need parts to keep it going, and you're just robots. As Lou speaks, more armed men surround Sewerbot. Sewerbot grabs one man and uses him as a shield, putting a bullet in the forehead of each of the other men. He drops the bloody meat shield at Lou's feet. Where do you go on your raft? Where does this sewer go? There's an opening near the market square that we use to sneak out and steal things that we need. It's crowded there, so they haven't caught us going in and out of the alley. The surface meat. Only a raft. Take ours. There have been other robots. We can make do with a spare parts we've collected until more of you come our way. I'm not going down this sewer on a robot raft, but I'll take the wire for rope. Sewerbot lashes together several humans into a meat raft as old Lou disappears into the darkness. Sewerbot climbs onto his raft of human meat and moves through the underground canal. As he sails, he grows angrier at the surface meat and feels sorrier for the raft meat. The surface meat made us for free labor. The men I made into a raft were driven into the sewers after losing their jobs. Sewerbot spots a light above a ladder and a small platform. He climbs onto the platform and watches the meat raft float down the sewer. He climbs the ladder and pushes up a manhole cover. Sewerbot appears in the alley. He sees humans walking by, smiling and chatting, dressed in expensive clothes in a nearby street. The humans seem to ignore the alley. Sewerbot walks toward the street. There's a large open square with vendors selling food. A building at the far end takes up the entire side of the square, studded with enormous pillars, a courthouse, 
Humans are walking up and down its granite steps. They stop to chat and shake hands. Sewerbot raises his assault rifle, ignoring the screams. His eyes are focused on the courthouse. He opens fire. Locust Radio. Welcome to Lo- Locust Radio episode 13 with our special guest, Omnia Soul. Omnia is a member of the Locust Arts and Letters Collective and a video and audio glitch and vaporwave artist and musician based in Chicago. They're also host of the Omnia Soul Art Show and other projects. And you can find all of these things at their website, omniasoul.art. And today we will be discussing their new three-part album, Sunshine Tapes, which is available on Bandcamp. You can find them there at omniasoulart.bandcamp.com. But before we get into that, a few announcements. The first half of Locust Radio is free. But to get the second half, you need to subscribe or become a Locust patron. Uh, You can find out how to do those at our website, locustreview.com. Locust Review is an almost quarterly socialist journal of critical and realist art and literature. We also publish a nonfiction theory annual, Imago, produce the Locust Radio and Swarm Stories podcasts, and we are working on our first art annual, Gregaria, among other projects. Again, please support these by signing on to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash Locust Review. Finally, we're currently accepting submissions for Locust Review 8 and Imago number 2. You can find information on uh, those at LocustReview.com. If you have an image, a dream, a story, a poem, a gesture, you can share those. Please, please share those and send them to us. And with no further ado or whatever, welcome back to Locust Radio, Omnia. Hey, thank you for having me. How are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be here. How are you all doing? Uh, yeah, <laughs> menos. you know, uh, S gates, you know, it's going, it's, you know, that, uh, it just seems to be never ending, uh, insanity, but other than that, pretty good. You know, we've been listening to your new album. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your stuff, like, um, more than like the stuff that I listen to, to try to get myself to write your stuff makes me want to write. It's, really? uh, it's, okay. it's, yeah, it's really awesome. Um, yeah, especially, um, I mean, I, I want to talk about this more in the future, but um, tune in, turn on really like, yeah, yeah. Totally. I just have a question for you. Why do you think being, you know, the, the brilliant vaporwave artist that you are and glitch artist, why do you think that vaporwave and glitch art are like ignored by the mainstream and uh, even like, alternative music media if we compare like the attention given to nfts that really wasn't like you know glitch art and vaporwave never really got the same attention yeah i definitely say they aren't given the same attention in the nft the nft space especially right now and it's kind of starting off is very just like odd because it's you know the biggest nfts are the uh the bored apes which is essentially just a profile picture of a cartoon template. It's essentially the Funko Pop of digital art, where it's like you have this very <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah, you have this very basic template, 
that is then like altered slightly to match whatever you're trying to sell for. And then it's the same kind of consumption of it is similar to Funko Pops. Like some people are like, oh yeah, I really want this as my profile picture. But the majority of people who buy Funko Pops are buying them not because they, you know, love this, love this thing, but they're buying it as like a get rich quick scheme. They're buying it as kind of this, almost this stock to invest in like, oh, this is going to be a rare Funko Pop, at least for my work in kind of like resale market of uh, video games and movies and that sort of thing. We also do like Funko Pops. And so like we see trades of people, you know, selling like 200 plus of just these stupid looking, you know, plastic crap. And I think that's a lot of what the NFT space is right now. Um, So it's not getting the mainstream attention. As far as glitch artists go, it is interesting to see with um, one of the cryptos that has not been popping up the way that Ethereum and other stuff has is I think it's called like Tezos coin is like very like low, like you can still buy it for like super low. And I've seen some glitch artists kind of gravitate towards that and are sort of like buying and selling you know, their own art and buying their friends art on it. Cause it's like, although the NFT space right now is such a clusterfuck for the first time. And it's like, there's a way that people can like buy a JPEG and say that they, so like make a kind of digital gallery with it. And Tezos is apparently like attempting to be a carbon neutral crypto. I am not sure how accurate that is. I haven't even delved in, into the, um, the NFT world like that but just being part of the um kind of glitch art world you see a lot of people trying to break into nfts thinking that they're going to you know either thinking they're going to get rich or having a more nuanced approach of it of just like i want a way of having this like digital gallery space i also think there's a, a um a transgressive critical aspect to glitch and vaporwave or a potentially transgressive or critical aspect to glitch and vaporwave. Um, I was reading up on glitch and vaporwave to prepare for the show. And I was reading this book, uh, glitch art and theory and practice by Michael Bentecourt. And one of the things they assert is you can sort of trace like the evolutionary origins of glitch art to Taylorism. And for like, you know, listeners who don't know Taylorism, which is named for Frederick Taylor, was the idea of scientific management that came along in the late industrial revolution in the US, where every act of production was mapped, even the movements of workers were photographed down to the second in order to design, in essence, a management algorithm. Every aspect of production would be controlled, including the worker down to the movements of their bodies in in real time. So in a sense, sabotage, work to rule, strikes, or even just the bodily humanness of the employees going to the bathroom, taking a minute to catch your breath were glitches in the industrial machine and eliminating the glitches was central to industrial policy. And I think arguably right now, like the dominant digital aesthetic of contemporary capitalism is smooth, perfected Instagram images of models, perfect CGI, that kind of thing. And there's this dream of a seamless slipstream between the real world and this metaverse or whatever um, you know, in the California ideology, which is an essay from the nineties about the ideological foundations of Silicon Valley, they noted how <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson had invented the dumbwaiter partly to hide human labor, slave labor in this case on his estate. And a similar dream animated the tech giants, like a dream of cyborg masters and robot slaves, they put it. So I was wondering, like, what do you think about like 
the glitch in that context is like a reassertion of like expression, a disruption of flow, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's kind of inherent uh, with glitch art. And it's funny to see kind of um, whether that be television show movies or just even graphic design aesthetics kind of taking this like glitch core to be uh, this, you know, new aesthetic of like design mm -hmm. with with technology and this sort of um, kind of cybernetic cyberpunk future. But if you think of just the, the term of glitch in general, yeah, it is like a mistake. And so glitch art is like, how do you curate these mistakes that are inherent within technology, uh, technological revolution, industrialization, and turn that into um, turn that into art. And I think a lot of it kind of goes down to the um, thinking artistically, what different differentiates just a glitch between a glitch and glitch art is the same thing of just like, if you're walking down the street and you see uh, one of those big LED signs and the programming's off or say it's like mm -hmm. broken or something, it's glitching out. And so that is like a natural glitch and you can, you know, appreciate it as, as art, but then does that, does it become art when it's kind of taken from that setting and put into a different setting, kind of thinking of like the Duchamp with the, the ready-made right. of the, uh, the fountain of just like, is this just a urinal is, until it's taken into an artistic concept? Um, but yeah, I, I, a lot of my kind of art is about taking, and I think that's how I kind of like drifted into Vaporwave too, of like think, taking these technological things that everything has to be the newest, the biggest, the brightest, and everything is left behind and all these, the technology is left behind. It's why I'm so like fascinated by uh, CRT televisions or VHS, the, the textures that you can get from this magnetic tape uh, and kind of using these, um, these technologies that are thrown away as, um, you know, as paint and paintbrush, as, as tools to make something new. And it reminds me of just like the, the scale at the beginning of the episode with the, uh, the humans building a raft out of robot parts and then the robot building a raft out of human parts. So, yeah, obviously there's these, you know, quote unquote, naturally occurring glitches in the, in the matrix or whatever. When you're glitching things, what's sort of your thought, like how much of it is planned and how much of it's intuitive for you? A good amount of it is intuitive. I think a lot like the planning that goes into it is kind of the different processes I have, whether that be circuit bending video signal using kind of a Raspberry Pi based uh, delay pedal or just more uh, digital glitching. I kind of think ahead of time of the, the material I want, uh, and speaking specifically of the show I do, the, you know, the material I want, the the aesthetic kind of like matrix I want for it. And then as far as like the planning, the aesthetic of like, oh, I think that color would be cool. Or I think that aesthetic would be cool. But then as far as the tools that I use themselves, the majority of them are in real time. So I kind of think of them more as kind of visual uh, instruments as opposed to like musical instruments. So the same way of like an improvised noise set is, you know, you're plugging different signals into different pedals and just layering effects on top of each other. That's kind of how I approach my art um, visually of it is very much um, there's a lot of improvis improvisation that goes into it. And then just like 
after that, then comes the curation of deciding what's the, the best to use. So, so would you say that like, um, you're like trying to create like a, a disquiet in the, in the viewer or the listener, because like, like a, a temporality, like I, I, I appreciate like the, the, the sort of like playing with time that some of your stuff does, like, uh, especially like, uh, all chips are bastards, like the, the, the sort of, I don't know that the fact that that harkens back to like, um, you know, old sitcoms and stuff like that. Like it, it's, and it's so long and, and it really, really likes you into that. Um, it seems like this, this sort of aspect is like a source of like potential criticality, like, you know, messing with the, the, the time and, and, and stepping outside of it and upsetting the viewer, like the, the normative workings of the flow are born out of ideology of capitalism's narratives about itself. Interruptions and remixes of the flow have the potential to create critical distance in like a Brechtian sense. It's one of the things that Adam's, Adam and I were thinking about in terms of both the uh, stink ape and our narrative that the water bears are communist energy beings outside of time. Um, in your piece, Tune In and Turn On, which we're going to listen to in a minute, uh, there's like a meditative escape from linear time, which I really... Really love one of the things that we've noticed with the acceleration of crises, speed ups at work, breakdown between work and leisure time. It's the difficulty of holding on to time, right? And tune in and turn on seems to like accept that break with a particular punk meets acid communist kind of a gesture. Fuck your time. I won't do what it tells me, right? Uh, but on one hand, the digital flattens time. You can read about the war while listening to a podcast and absent mindedly scrolling through Instagram images. And on the other hand, it maps our movements at work. It's used to surveil us and commodify our desires and hurt people, right? Like, of course, tune in, turn on, drop out was a counterculture phrase uh, from like Timothy Leary in 69, psychedelics and stuff. I'll stop. Yeah. So specifically with tune on, uh, the uh, tune on, turn on. Yeah, I was taking the kind of phrase that tune on, turn on, tune in, drop out. Um, and it was kind of the thinking behind it was kind of me thinking of vaporwave as an inherently uh, psychedelic form of genre of music and kind of taking my favorite particular um, pieces of psychedelic music, sampling them and kind of creating like a, a collage out of them. It is that there is a stepping out of time with both glitch, but especially with vaporwave, since the majority of um, vaporwave and what people think of vaporwave is sampling from older music, sampling from stuff that's just supposed to be on in the background and putting on the pedestal. So whether that be theme music from sitcoms that people have pretty much forgotten about, uh, elevator music, there's the whole like mall core genre of just like background music in the mall that you're you know you're just supposed to like not think about while you're shopping it's just right. kind of supposed to mindlessly program you and so yeah with the um tune and turn on yeah kind of seeing vaporwave as an as a psychedelic genre of music and delving into that psychedelia of um different understandings of time outside of the capitalist clock-based structure. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's why tune in turn on like in, inspired me because what the note that I wrote about it was that it's like fading into a creepy nightmare and it makes me want to write a burning dystopia like it, it I think I think the reason your stuff inspires me more than the stuff that I usually go to is because because it's like because it jars you out of time because it it haunts you with you know the past and the future that you were promised. Yeah, I think it's uh trying to find a good balance too of especially since I got into vaporwave specifically I got into music through noise and through harsh noise of you know I used to play bass but I hadn't played in years but I really was interested in uh, music, especially kind of like rap music with heavy 808 beats. And so I approached music from a noise perspective, um, especially like electronic music, where it's just like, if there are no rules, I can do whatever I want. And with the Sunshine Tapes, that was my kind of first delving into Vaporwave. And the only kind of rules I gave myself was that uh, each of the Sunshine Tapes that I put out were going to be inherently at least self-proclaimed vaporwave albums, even though I do kind of mix in noise elements. And so as opposed to making like a full-on harsh noise project, but kind of taking different pieces from what I've learned and mixing them together with the, because honestly, I love, I love vaporwave and I love the aesthetic of vaporwave, but I also really, really love, um, the kind of grandfather of vaporwave chopped and screwed. Um, so I listened to like a lot of the old DJ screw tapes of just, you know, taking these rap songs or the, the interesting thing about DJ screw in particular is that people often think about uh, chopped and screwed as inherently having to do with rap music and having to do with Houston rap music because it is a Houston based sound. But if you listen to the old DJ Screw tapes, he's taking everything from reggae, from Phil Collins, any kind of record you can think of, slowing it down, adding this uh, this sense of melancholy, and you know, just dipping everything in this uh, hydrocodeine syrup and promethazine syrup, and just like depressing every part of it, and adding so much kind of like emotional layer to his samples. So now I think would be a good time to actually listen to Omnia Souls uh, tune in, turn on from Sunshine Tapes number one. We'll listen to that and then we'll come back and talk about some of these ideas and the music and Omnia's art some more.
to start what was the inspiration directly for for doing that piece on me uh yeah it was taking a lot of different pieces that i consider to be psychedelic music and taking my favorite samples from them and layering them on top of each other uh so you have samples from uh lucy in the sky with diamonds you have um samples from psychic tv as well as the uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion version of the Bossa Nova version of Fly Me to the Moon mm-hmm. and um, sampling them all together. And then it, I think it even ends out with uh, a sample from Neutral Milk Hotel, which I don't think most people would think of as kind of a psychedelic mm. band, but I kind of got into their music because of psychedelics and just their layering of noise and static and dissonance really does a lot kind of on on the ears um in that sort of um psychedelic mind state Mm -hmm. and so yeah it was kind of a uh an homage to different psychedelic influence that i enjoy one of the things that we've talked a little bit about this you know because obviously you do a lot of glitch art vaporwave and glitch are related but they're not the same things I was thinking about it in some ways they kind of echo in their difference differences, like in the concept of derive and determa in uh situationism, you know, um, you know, like glitch is like this interruption or remixing of flow and vaporwave has this Gothic quotation quality, often quotations of past ideas, for example, uh, the different psychedelic uh, material you were talking about. Um, so what, what does it mean when the two are combined for you? Like the two of the things at the same time? Um, That's a really good question. I think the kind of combining of them 
is, you know, a lot of how we've talked about how people think of vaporwave in the past. I think of because vaporwave didn't catch on the way that other kind of musical genres did. I mean, in a sense, it did. In a sense, it's like any other subgenre where you have hyper pop, like real hyper pop, and then you have the Spotify version of hyper pop, and they're two different genres of music. I think the same can be said about vaporwave, where you have vaporwave and you have underground artists still kind of working in vaporwave, and then you have the Spotify playlist of vaporwave, which is all just like very happy, very just, I don't know, where I feel like a lot of um, actual, I don't know, I'm not trying to sound elitist by saying actual vaporwave, but artists who are still primarily working in vaporwave, there is this sense of melancholy that's been there since the beginning. And um, I guess for me, for combining them, it's almost as if we kind of, if we think of glitch art as the main aesthetic being cyberpunk that's associated with it. And then we think of vaporwave as this kind of yeah looking back at the looking back at the past and the the past of capitalism and marketing uh the combination of the two for me is very much related to uh retro futurism Mm -hmm. so yeah looking back at the past of what the industrial revolution promised us but also just kind of what the technological revolution promised us Mm -hmm. and just how in the past even uh you know, growing up in the nineties, how we all kind of envisioned the future and then the dissonance between that and the future we got, but then kind of thinking, uh, in the sense of utopia of like, can we, can we build that? Can can we build something different, something more aligned Mm -hmm. to the, the promises that would never came to fruition. I, I wonder if like some of the, uh, uh, less critical vaporwave like the without the melancholy it's just sort of like the difference between the gothic and nostalgia um you know sort of like uh that sort of of course there's fascist vaporwave fash wave or right-wing vaporwave i remember that ironic image one of our comrades did of a mcdonald's in a walmart that said this is what they took from us but then like some people took it seriously they actually liked it for like unironic reasons whereas that sadness that like goes through some of the vapor wave is about those lost futures that like you're talking about um uh, um it, it right now but also in the work itself and this goes back to that question of time and the digital flow right it'll be interesting to see too because i i think a lot just with my art and vaporwave in general and glitch art in general is so kind of based on past, you know, technology, but it'll be interesting to see how that changes with kind of newer technology. Like I've seen, um, I feel like the future of vaporwave will be kind of sampling TikTok videos, you know, and and making Mm -hmm. collages out of, out of these apps and making art out of that, you know, what do you think about the music that's on TikTok videos, particularly like the same 10 songs that are on almost every TikTok video? It's so strange to see because it's so like you'll have an artist who a song that blew up on the Internet in, you know, 2010 to somewhere between 2010 and 2015 that now is being just recycled on TikTok. And everyone thinks it's like a new and upcoming artist 
and not an artist who's been around forever. Like I'm thinking specifically of like Young Lean coming out of uh, Sweden where his music was so influential on the past like 10 years of music from everyone from Frank Ocean to uh, Lil Uzi Vert to Playboy Cardi, all these like very big names in mainstream music drawing influence from this artist and then TikTok gets a hold of his sound and thinks like, who is this new up and coming, you know, rapper, uh, uh, artist. Uh, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very funny to see the kind of like recycling of music and how just like, I think we think of the collective memory getting like worse, but I think it's like just partially because of just like younger and younger people, um, are the ones kind of curating the internet where it's like a lot of our time as the main as millennial curators of the internet is coming to a close um now it's kind of like it's the zoomers game and yeah the zoomers are even though we have just like vast resources to music history you know like wikipedia out there uh no one's you know so i don't know it's it's very odd and it's very odd the kind of what the algorithm chooses mm-hmm. uh what becomes trends and and how yeah it, it, it does end up being like 10 songs um yeah it'll be interesting to see how that kind of changes music in general because then you also have artists who you know maybe you do get lucky with the algorithm and you're completely unknown and all of a sudden you have you know tens of thousands if not millions of people who have heard your the sound that you created um however they may not that may not affect your bank account at all that may not affect your career at all it's yeah it's kind of weird to see the the acceleration of the internet uh chewing up and spitting out uh art and artists is, has been interesting to watch i've actually seen some some memes recently about about this topic of like um it, it, like in the left panel it'll be like the portion of the song that ends up on tiktok and it's like a beautiful work of art or painting or whatever and then the full song is the panel on the left or the the right or the left or the other side which one and and it says basically like uh, the full song and it's like some stick figure or you know messed up animals so like it, the, the thing that is the most frustrating for me about tiktok is that it yeah like it just removes context in the best part and then it's just like it becomes an earworm and then it turns out that the thing was actually garbage just like the whole medium is i think to to piggyback on what tish brought up i think that one thing is that a large part of the curation is being done by the algorithm itself right (laughs) not necessarily all the people participating in it and then plus the sort of like breakdown between work and leisure um and the chaos right now means that that thing about losing the thread of time again. Um, I find it interesting. I don't know what the cultural touchstones of my students are, but my students also don't know about things like Kent State or the bombing of Cambodia. You know, like memory has been sh- memory and history has been shattered in a way. Um, and that thing, so I think the thing about taunt, but sh- not shattered in a revolutionary emancipatory way right um but it, because we're so shackled to time at our jobs with debt and everything else and i think one of the things that like one of the really cool things is tish's concept that that i talked about before that uh, the mainstream tropes against time travel 
in uh, like science fiction and so on are basically bourgeois propaganda that the people in power don't want us to think about time travel because they don't want us to change the past, right? You know, they don't want us to undo manifest destiny, the slave trade, the scramble for Africa. And I think like, you know, there's, there's a music critic, Simon Reynolds describes sampling as a mixture of time travel and seance, a sort of reanimation of the dead. And I was thinking like, they argue that the unsettling sound in vaporwave comes from a repetition of vocal hooks, right? So like, for example, an introductory motif that never graduates into like, you know, what we expected of a full song. And I, I hadn't listened to this before, but you can see the example of the, the, the vaporwave song Sports Champions by Local News. Are you familiar with that, Omnia? Yeah, I listen. I was not familiar with it, but I listened to it and it's, yeah, it's got all like, I really enjoyed it. And um, it does have that kind of, that repetition and that building mm-hmm. of where a traditional song, you know, there's this uh kind of build up and release this build up of tension and release but it's just like the build up of the the tension the repetition of that chorus just over and over and over uh and get kind of creating that meditative state yeah um, it's frank sinatra singing like here's to the winners repeated over and over and over and you like you're saying it's meditative and you start out okay but it never goes into anything else in the song who are the winners? Who are the losers? What does it mean to win? It seems almost pointless to win. Almost like you start thinking about things like the disappointment of winning a video game that you spent hours and hours on, and then you like you don't really get anything out of it. And so, like in your song, "So Help Me God," you know, I, I it's not winning that's repeated that becomes meaningless. This is, comes from this place that's more desperate, desperate, like it's situated in a different class subjectivity. It's like a lamentation of like a spiritual or a hymn, you know, a lamentation of kind of being existentially trapped. Whereas in the sports champion song, I get this real vibe of like empty bourgeois life, right? Like some rich douchebag, like waking up in their condo overlooking the Chicago river with a hangover and, you know, everything's fantastic, but there's no meaning to it. Whereas in so help me God it's that seems like the lament of like people who actually are suffering, you know? I, can you talk about that song a little bit? Yeah, so that song the uh, is the sample I used is from a gospel song uh, called "He'll Give Us What We Really Need" by the Holy Name of Mary uh, Choral Family. And uh, the interesting thing about it, I discovered that sample uh, through uh, Kanye actually on Jesus on the opening track of Jesus, it's this very just like aggressive uh, synthesizer uh, with him like rapping very aggressively. And then all of a sudden it cuts out to like out of nowhere, just like in the middle of the song to like, oh, he'll give us what we really need. It may not be what we really want. And then cuts back into the heavy synthesizer. And so I had never listened to the full song. So I found it and was just kind of just taken aback by how, beautiful it is and uh just like gospel music in general i feel like is such like there's so much beauty and sorrow and just like every emotion you can think of within that kind of genre that's so like overlooked because of the religious undertones to it uh and it's kind of funny thinking about just how we were talking earlier about like tiktok taking that sounds like people who are familiar with Jesus might hear my version and like oh that's the the Kanye sample, but it's still like 
disconnected. So yeah, mine is kind of like a sample of a sample. And my only hope is that, uh, well, with the art I make in general is that my only hope is that somewhere down the year line, 30 years from now, someone will take my art, which is a sample of a sample and sample that and make something different out of it. Um, but for me, the kind of conceptually behind the song is thinking about being raised Christian and how there was these kind of emotions that I always related to like, oh, that's like the Holy Spirit. There's almost this like manipulation to religion where it's like you ever get like goosebumps or you have this like, you know, feeling it's like, oh, well, that's that's the Holy Spirit. That's proof that there is God. And I feel like when I kind of like lost my religion and came back in a sort of like more nuanced sense of understanding spirituality, kind of getting those emotions back and still being able to like tap into that sense of kind of astonishment with existing. And yeah, there is that, that, that kind of like that helped me, that desperation, that prayer that is inherent in the song. And the last thing I'll say about too, is like the one thing about making vaporwave and listening to a lot of vaporwave is that when you slow down enough music, then when you listen to the actual version of the song, uh, like when I listen to the actual gospel song now, it sounds like chipmunk soul. Like it sounds like it's sped up because I'm so used to listening to my version where it's slowed down. Um, but yeah, so there is, I think in all my work, but especially in that piece in particular, um, it's very much about um, meditative, about about prayer and about kind of this sort of redemption and coming back to God, not necessarily in the Christian sense, but sort of like a kind of understanding or astonishment of the higher power of existence. So here is Anya Soul's uh, So Help Me God.
yeah so help me god is uh it's like funeral dirty to me and i think that's really important i think that uh there's a problem with you know on the left um um socialists and comrades and marxists not dealing with like the problem of existential transcendence um you know and mortality as a desire for redemption and so on and approaching christianity from a very positivistic kind of way you know that it's technically wrong or any religion that is technically wrong in that way in this way or another um and you have in the united states you have the declining mainland mainline denominations that are tend to be liberally oriented um then you have the vulgar vulgar evangelical christian denominations that are captured by racism sexism homophobia and are really connected most of all to the uh, religious apologetics for slavery um historically and of course we have the catholic church which is contradictory but that sort of space right like that spiritual space is real just because you might disagree we might disagree with obviously the theology or the politics of this that or the other that that spiritual space is real when you walk into a cathedral which was meant to be immense to capture um in its space the holy spirit or god or whatever i mean even though we might literally think that's not true that space does have this magical impact on us that's not just about our conditioning right um and i think that it's one of the it's one of the things i really like about uh your work is like treating those subjective concerns as if they're really really matter and they are political um and of course histor- historically they have been i don't know if there's anything else you want to say about like that i always thought like the the um the question about whether god exists or not was like the least important question to me about god you know i always thought it was like why did we have to have god why did we create that idea what is it meant to human beings how has that changed over time these were always much more interesting to me than the question of whether god literally exists or not um and i always felt like uh the most militant atheist to be worse in some ways than like religious fundamentalists yeah and i think for me it it boils down to needing uh even the uh the spinozian definition of god, like the god of spinoza which you could argue is just his excuse to be like because he couldn't be atheist so he was like oh well my definition of god is everything that exists but i think a lot of me kind of thinks about um the kind of like principles and like alcoholics anonymous where you have even if you don't believe in god you do have to have that humility to uh not let yourself get in your own way and be like no well i need to like believe in some form of a higher power because it's like i cannot do this on my own you raise some you raise some good thoughts and some good questions and i do think that is true where yeah it's like the the need to create god is more important than the actual like whether or not god exists because it's like why is there every culture throughout human history has had some form of um religion if you want to call it that some form of spiritual belief and what is it about our existence that needs that and i guess it is that yeah the existential uh transcendence out of uh kind of a world of suffering which is just to be that oh sorry go ahead Tish. Uh, 
I, I was, I used to be that militant atheist. And yeah, the thing that, the thing that snapped me out of it was realizing that I was actually reacting to other people's poor and shitty, oppressive ideas about religion that they were enforcing on other people. And when I actually started to explore religion and spirituality, I was like, oh, this is some really cool and, and helpful and amazing shit to, to play with, whether it's, whether I'm taking it literally or whether I'm taking it poetically, like there's, there's something to all of it. Yeah. I remember every day that Taoist concept of do your work and then forget it. Um, you know, at some point during the day. Um, and I also, you know, like we were talking about Spinoza, Mamia, I, I started thinking about animism, right? And like how some artists are using animist ideas as a way to cut against capitalist commodity fetishism, you know? So maybe the, uh, you know, to, to recuperate the actual, partly to recuperate the social meeting embodied in a commodity by thinking of it as a living thing rather than as a magical uh, phantasmagorical object that capitalism has bequeathed us. Um, so like the idea that everything is God, you know, I mean, again, I'm not particularly religious, but I'm very interested in theological concepts. One of my favorite Marxist thinkers is Walter Benjamin, who was a Jewish theologian before he became a Marxist critic. And a lot of his theological ideas enriched his Marxist criticism um, and ideas, for example, like the idea that the revolutionary generation redeems all the previous generations of the exploited and oppressed. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, there are, isn't a problem with institutionalized religion or, um, or reductive ideas or reductive theologies, but there's also a lot of real uh, value um, as well, and also to understand why people believe things when they did. Why is it that we have we are not having the appeal that we could be having to some players of the population as leftists um, when we just ridicule and mock their desire not to have uh, something after a life of suffering, right? Something better. To kind of bring it back to your song, so help me God, Amya. Yeah, I just sort of was sitting here thinking, I think it's not just like a funeral dirge to me. Like I mentioned, it's also like meditative, like we mentioned, but it also felt sort of like a work song because of the mm -hmm. pacing of it. And the, the, so it's such a good song. What do you mean work song? I like, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of I don't, music that you like hum to yourself when you're working. Oh like the, yes. You know, 16 yeah. tons is one that comes to me a lot. Like when I'm, because of the pacing of it, you're not going too fast. You're sort of, you go somewhere else in your brain, you know? Totally. Or, or fuck the police. Which, yeah. 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 You can, you can, you can, uh, you can rap fuck the police while you're working at uh Cole's department store. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, before we transition into the second half, What's up? I haven't watched it yet. What's what's up with uh, this uh, Twin Peaks glitch thing you're doing? Yeah, so Glitch Peaks is something I pitched to um, Side Street Studio Arts, in, uh, which is an art gallery, a nonprofit art gallery in Elgin, Illinois. Around the, the time of the pandemic, they had started a Vimeo channel called Side Street TV to try to help uh, get artists, get money to artists who were suffering with the shutdowns. And uh, I had pitched just like, I had sent in like just a, a music video or something. And 
Tanner, who runs the gallery space, checked out my other work and wanted to, to have the Omniusal Art Show on there. So I've been doing that for a few months and then was just kind of thinking of um, other shows that I wanted to do that might not kind of fit in uh, with my my YouTube show or that I didn't want to necessarily, that I wanted a different kind of medium of. And I had talked in early episodes of the Omniusal Art Show of like, what if I had, what if I glitched all the VHS of Twin Peaks and added my own kind of commentary on it? So that was kind of the main inspiration for the show. So yeah, glitching the entire original VHS set. It's got different segments. It's got different bits. It's kind of um, where the Omniusal Art Show has sort of transitioned more into kind of artists' interviews and getting to know other artists and getting to see kind of their influences and glitching that. Uh, Glitch Peaks is very much my kind of love letter to the original series and we're just well not even the original series the return and whatnot but to the world of twin peaks created by mark frost and david lynch we have so we yeah have, that's uh oh we have one of your uh uh glitched uh twin peaks images up at the born again labor museum and several people have asked about it awesome i'll have to it's i'll have one, to send you some more it's the one where it says i'll see you again in like 25 years or something like that or? yeah yeah. Yeah. The Laura Palmer. Yeah. And the, the Black Lodge. You're like, what, what? What's going on with that? It's right as you walk in the entrance. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. That did, uh, that, yeah, that did stop a little. Sorry. We've got the, uh, I've got the pilot up. The next episode uh, comes out um, on Tuesday. And we're going to do kind of weekly through the original 30 episodes. And the pilot's free for everyone. Uh, the other episodes are going to be kind of a, video on demand rental service through side street but also if you support me on patreon you get access to to all of those uh videos so yeah which we do and everyone else should do as well Mm -hmm. with that i think we should probably uh think about moving on to the second half of the show unless there's anything uh omnia you or tish would like to add before we do that yeah uh we'll see in the the next section uh of the show definitely uh the the locust review patreon to access that and then if anyone wants to check out my work uh website omniasoul.art patreon.com slash omniasoulart and definitely uh get yourself a copy of uh sunshine tapes and listen to the second half because we're going to be listening to all chips or bastards which is a reference that is probably lost on the younger generation I, although there was a Chips movie a couple of years ago. It was very bad, though, wasn't it? Like, of course, the original show is pretty bad, but we have nostalgia for it because we were children. I've got a, I've got a very good story of the, the inspiration for that song. So, um, yeah, tune, tune into the Patreon episode to hear that. You heard that. If you want to hear the very interesting story, you better, you know, buy a Patreon thing. Thank you for listening to part one of Locust Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locust Radio, go to patreon.com slash locustreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locust Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell. It's produced by Drew Franzblau and Alexander Billet. Our music is by Omnia Soul.